Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, which is mourning the deaths of Ellis Marcellus Jr., Walter James Amos Jr., and Tom Dempsey, all of whom passed due to complications of COVID-19. I'm joined by Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Arkansas lawmakers have implemented precautions to protect them from COVID-19 as they head into the 2020 fiscal session. To date, three legislators have tested positive, requiring them all to vote by proxy. Thank you for joining us for Episode 6 of Clear and Convincing, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Ira Einhorn. In March 1979, the body of Helen Holly Maddox was found in a locked trunk in a locked closet of the Philadelphia apartment she shared with Ira Einhorn during their stormy five-year relationship. Holly was last seen in September 1977 when she returned to Philadelphia to pick up her belongings after deciding to end the relationship, which had been marked by physical and emotional abuse. Einhorn, who was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, was able to convince the court to reduce his bail due to his local celebrity status and the testimony of business and community leaders. In January 1981, he fled the United States, was tried in absentia in 1993, and ultimately located in France and extradited back to the United States in 2001. We'll talk about the case against Einhorn, his flight to avoid prosecution, his extradition, 2002 trial, direct appeal, and post-conviction claims. Finally, we'll talk about Einhorn's death in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, on April 3rd, 2020. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing this evening? Pretty good. Uh, I am... Being a, a an aspiring hermit, I'm actually quite happy with the stay-at-home order. <laughs> I, I hate to admit it, but I am. And well, my I condolences mean, on your co- on your coworker. I don't know. Yes, ma'am. I certainly that does put a damper on everything. But 
I don't know if you've been paying attention to your local news or anything, but I don't know if you saw it, but the CDC is apparently considering uh, lifting the order for some, for non-affected individuals, like people, I guess, that aren't ill. I'm not sure if this is 100% thought through or reported correctly, but this is what I'm hearing. Okay, well, they can. They likely would be able to do that. Pardon me, in um, in states that aren't heavily affected, or locations that are not heavily affected. But the problem is, New Orleans has so many cases. Right. Very true. And ultimately, ultimately, it's the city, county, parish, or state governments that ultimately decide what's going to be done in their jurisdictions. Yeah. I mean, if I'm um, going to be honest, they can make a recommendation. If I'm going to be honest and hazard a guess on this, I'm going to say we're probably going to be where we are, you know, probably I would say till at least the middle of May. Just hazard. Yeah. I've, I, I have seen, um, I have seen tickers and things like that that, yeah, a lot a lot of states are considering. I think uh, Governor Newsom in California is considering extending it to June. Yeah, I've seen possibly August before this is over. And, I mean, yeah. I've also heard that there isn't going to be a normal anymore. We're going to literally have mm-hmm. a quote-unquote new normal. So, I mean, who knows right. what that and I, I want to address something. I've heard this in a couple of places from a couple of people. Um, the COVID virus hit the, the Southern Hemisphere as well as the Northern Hemisphere. And the Southern Hemisphere is in summertime. So heat is likely not a deciding factor in the uh, viability of the virus. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that he yeah. is uh, a no-no. Which, I mean, the same thing, though, we heard a month ago that this wasn't affecting young people. And now, all of a sudden, unfortunately, uh, of course, Correct. it looks like they have compromised immune systems, but young people are passing away from this virus. So, I mean... Correct. Man, and I've, I think I've also seen... I've also seen some medical... Uh, tweets and from medical professionals, not, you know, tinfoil hat people, that putting people on ventilators may be what's actually contributing to their death. Really? I'm gonna need some uh I'm gonna need some I I I I just I just remember reading I mean, you know, it's kinda like you're you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't because their respiratory systems become so compromised that they can't get oxygen. But now hospitals are actually, I think, waiting to see if the respiratory distress resolves Mm -hmm. on its own without the need of the ventilators. Because I think ventilators can cause fluid to build up in your lungs and just exacerbate the problem you already have. You know, I, said, I, I don't know. I've heard that before too. If you're honest, I, I haven't wrong. really. 
yeah, I I haven't really read any of the articles in full, and I'm not a medical professional, but, you know, and this is something we, we have to understand with our federal, our local, our state, our our parish county governments and public health entities. This is something nobody has ever seen before. Right, absolutely. In the 20th and the 21st century, we were able to eradicate or diminish so many uh, infectious diseases that this is something brand new. For This is something people have never seen. It's a lot like the Spanish flu was back in the early 19, uh, 1917, 1918, 1919, where they'd have, you know, pandemic proportions and then it would, it would seem to be gone. And then the next year, you'd have another pandemic. Well, and I mean, they're talking yellow about this fever. possibly become our new seasonal flu type of situation as well. So, I mean, we may have a season Correct. that COVID breaks. Correct. One of the things that I am hoping that uh, will be done, and I think there are um, there are agencies and, and entities who are in the beginning stages of putting together Let's get as much data about the patients, the symptoms they presented with, their outcome, positive or negative, and let's find out what they did prior to seeking medical intervention. Absolutely. Because I've seen an article that ibuprofen is the worst thing to take to try and combat the fever. Yeah. And so let's look and see if the if the negative outcomes, if all of those patients took ibuprofen, well, then we know to tell people if you can take acetaminophen uh, or some other, you know, pain reliever, uh, antipyretic fever reducer, take that. Do not take ibuprofen. Right. You know, so... That is, you know, that is where we stand. And, um, you know, I've just been trying to, even though I don't mind, um, I've just been trying to follow. I go to the grocery store maybe once a week. I go in. I get what I need. I go out. Now, Walmart has put up shields now, by see, the, I've also heard the cash Walmart register. Here. I've also heard, I don't They're know if it's not there yet, but I've heard that Walmart is only allowing 10 people in at a time as well. Correct. They are. Uh, they are. And I, when I went to Walmart on Monday morning, luckily I got there when they weren't very busy. And so I didn't have to wait. I only had to wait a couple minutes. Three or four people came out, so they let me go in. Right. Um. But yeah, and they're and they're kind of controlling traffic on the in and out. As people are coming out, they make people trying to come in wait. Well, and I mean, so and this you is won't something have close contact. This is something that we're all having to learn through at the same time. But one thing I'll say: if you Correct. don't need to go physically to Walmart, they have an option to order your stuff online and have it. Even well, I I think that I think that the. Uh, I know that in my area from my local store, pickup and delivery have been in, have been impacted. 
Okay. I think they're trying to muster all the troops inside the store. Mm-hmm. Because they're having to restock probably almost hourly. So um, I have not been able to put in. I would prefer to do a delivery or pickup order, but I haven't been able to do that. So uh, if you can do it in your local area, that's great. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend doing that just because, number one, you reduce the risk upon yourself, and you also reduce possibly spreading it to somebody else. Right, right. So, um, but I've been, you know, I've been here three weeks, and I haven't been exposed. Right. I haven't come down with any symptoms, which leads me to suspect that, you know, I've been lucky enough not to have been exposed. Now, have so. you uh, been lucky enough to find a mask like the CDC is uh, put out a guy? No, I, to find, I, to I have mask? not. I, I do have a bandana in my – I did buy bandanas a few years ago to try and tie up my hair. And my head is an odd shape, so headbands and bandanas don't want to stay where they're put. Um, so I probably will – Will uh, I've got bandanas and old rubber bands on. I did watch a YouTube video on how to make a mask. <laughs> but, no, I haven't even been wearing a mask. But I've also – when I'm out, I've been keeping my distance. If I go to go down the aisle in the grocery store and somebody's already there – I back up and I wait until they come out of the aisle and then I go in. Absolutely. And, you know, I wipe down the cart when I get to the grocery store. Um, Ross has been, put, has been putting some something really oily on the cart, which is unpleasant. Um, mm-hmm. But they have the hand sanitizer wipes right inside the store. So I always grab one of those and take the oily substance off. Good. I don't know. I don't know if it's it's just it's a a disinfectant, but it's got an oily residue mm-hmm. that it leaves behind. So, but yeah, I just you know I, I I'm doing my best to social distance, and I only go out when I have to. Um, like I said, my Walmart has put up plastic shields, and one of the things I've been doing, and I hope listeners out there are doing when I do have to go out, whether it's to the grocery store, the bank, when I get takeout, I always make sure to thank the persons that I come in contact with. Because if the grocery store people stop going to work, we would never ever survive. And I can't say that enough. Um, I, I have seen a few medical professionals have thanked them for what they're doing um, because they are putting their lives on the line, literally. Um, but I've been, you know, making sure first responders, if I if I encounter them, thank you. It's, it's just two little words, just say it. And I've had grocery store clerks who were on the verge of tears because it was a bad day and they needed to hear that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and – Another thing, if they're out of something, it's not their fault. Oh, no. Absolutely so not. I mean, don't yes, take your frustration you out. 
Come on. Don't now. take your frustration out on the grocery store people. Exactly. Um, they they are they are doing the best that they can. They're getting as much product in as they can, and they're trying to keep the shelves stocked. So, um, anyway, well, let's get to the show. Uh, I want to apologize to everybody for the late start to this evening, as well as the schedule change. Uh, I've followed the Ira Einhorn case pretty much since 1977, on and off. And um, when I saw this weekend that Ira Einhorn had passed away at the age of 79 while serving uh, his life sentence for murder, I wanted to look at his case and, and talk about his case. So next week we will talk about Angelo Buono and Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Stranglers. Right. And I mean, that's one thing that uh, definitely you'll get here in the show. Is if something breaks, we'll definitely uh, bring it to you as far as trying to give you the best information possible surrounding something that is pertinent in the news. Right. Well, you know, I debated for about 15 minutes with myself whether to schedule this next Tuesday. And I thought about it, thought about it, and that's when I sent you the email or posted the the story and told you we've got a schedule change on Facebook. I absolutely, I do not blame you, especially if it's a case you've been following as long as what you have. I mean, it's something that's yeah. definitely interesting to say the least, especially the fact yeah. that he reigned all the way to uh, France. Right. Yeah. That that was the thing that irked so many people. Um, but we'll we'll get to that in a little while, except maybe the French. Um okay. all right, so we're gonna talk about first of all, we're gonna talk about Helen Holly Maddox, the victim. Um, she was the oldest child of Fred Maddox Junior, who was a native of Natchitoches, Louisiana. And his wife, Helen Elizabeth King Maddox, who was from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, Holly was born in 1947. In 1948, her brother John was born. And then in 1955, Sister Meg. Uh, and 1958 or 1959, Sister Elizabeth. And finally, 1961, her youngest sister Mary was born. So she came from a very large family. Her dad was a, a private in the Army and served during World War II. He began working for oil companies in Texas. Uh, he and Elizabeth, his wife, met while both of them were in Germany in, at Dusseldorf, uh, apparently working for the Red Cross after World War II. They were married in Wiesbaden, Germany uh, after the war and then came back to the United States, moved to Texas while Fred went to school on the GI Bill. And I believe he went to Texas A&M. Then he began working for oil companies. They settled in Tyler, Texas, and that's where Meg 
Elizabeth, who went by Buffy, and Mary were born. Um, Holly was a great big sister to both John, well, to John and the three younger sisters, um, who were nine years, 11 years, and 13 years younger than she was, or 14 years younger than she was. Um, She read to them, she played with them, she, you know, was very, very family-oriented. And then uh, she went to school in Tyler. They lived in a a nice area, but it wasn't the nicest area. And Tyler was something of a small town. So while Holly was very intelligent, very good in school, a very beautiful girl, she never felt like she fit in. And so most of her life, she was looking for the place that she fit in and searching for the place that she fit in. Uh, After graduating high school, where she was a salutatorian of her class, she went to college at Bryn Mawr, and I know I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, and that is in, excuse me, the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. It was one of the, I think it's the Seven Sister Colleges, which was an all-women's school uh, founded by the Quakers. After her first semester, she went back to Tyler. She worked. She traveled a little. Um, She went to junior college or or community college in Tyler. And then uh, in 1968, she returned to Bryn Mawr and was able to complete her degree, which she did in 1971. Uh, In 1972, in October, she met Ira Einhorn. Ira was a charismatic individual. He was a very forceful individual, and they entered into a stormy relationship almost from day one. They were together for five years, and then in September of 1977, Holly decided to end her relationship with Ira Einhorn because she recognized that it was not a healthy one for her and that she needed something that Ira could not give her. Then Ira Samuel Einhorn was born in 1940 into a middle-class Jewish family. He was the oldest son. He had a younger brother named Stephen. Apparently, Stephen was something of a sickly child, and so I would imagine that Stephen got a lot of attention from mom and dad that Ira felt he should have gotten. Uh, He was also very intelligent, but didn't perform as well in school as his intellect would have suggested. Uh, Probably, perhaps, wasn't interested in school. He went to University of Pennsylvania and graduated in the 60s with a degree in, I believe it was English. And after college, he he got involved in the anti-war movement and became a hippie guru. He was a womanizer. He would basically make moves on other women right in front of the woman that he was with, whether it was in a relationship or whether he was just 
in a casual relationship with the woman. They could be committed and living together or just dating for a few weeks, and he would pick up other women in front of of the girlfriend. He was also a very dominant and controlling person. Um, He was very intelligent. He read a lot. He liked to talk, and he liked to be the center of attention. And if the woman he was with seemed to have a mind of her own or any ideas of her own, Ira did his best to squelch them as quickly as he could. And he was seen by many friends dominating, being unkind, being condescending, uh, being downright rude. Um, And not just women. He was pretty much downright rude to anybody he came in contact with. Um, He also was violent toward women who tried to end their relationships with him. In the 1960s, a girlfriend by the name of Rita, uh, he choked her when she told him their relationship was over. She was unconscious. And then Ira wrote about it in his diary the next day, and he seemed very proud of himself. Um, he did not seem to be worried or upset that he had gone to that length and nearly taken someone else's life. Uh, he saw violence at the end of a relationship as a natural progression of a relationship. Then uh, a few years later, he had a woman who wanted to break up with him named Judy He cracked her over the head with a Coke bottle and then tried to strangle her. And it was only in his mind, according to his diary, her will to live that had stopped him from taking her life. So um, that's, you know, that's pretty much who Ira is. Uh, He wasn't a particularly attractive man. He had a beard. He had straggly hair. Uh, He supposedly bathed quite often, but apparently only took his clothes to his mother to wash infrequently. And so, So unfortunately, stemming from maybe insecurities, because you, the way you were describing him, he sounded very controlling. He is very controlling, and I, but I don't think it's if it's. An insecurity, it's a very, very deep underlying uh, insecurity of which Einhorn had zero zero insight. Um, I think it was more an an entitlement, a sense of entitlement. Frankly, in all the years that I've read about Einhorn and I've read some of the things his mother had to say about him, uh, especially after Holly was murdered, Mama didn't spank Ira's little ass enough, if you ask me. Now, several of his friends describe her as having been a typical Jewish mother, so there may have been an element of Ira could never do anything wrong. And so bad behavior was not... He didn't suffer consequences for bad behavior, it was basically either swept under the rug, ignored, or perhaps someone else's fault. Right. So, uh, but, you know, like I said, I, I, I think if Ira's mama had spanked him a little bit more, 
And the thing is, his misogynism, you know, from, from everything I've read about his mother, he has no reason to hate women. His mother treated him like freaking gold. He should adore women. You know, there's no nothing. There was no abuse. There was no mistreatment. There was no neglect for him to have a hatred toward women. But he really did. Women were good for sex or money to support his lazy ass. Because while he claims he's always done this, quote, important work, um, yes, he, you know, he talked down the move members in Palton Village at one point. Uh, but he certainly wasn't on Osage Avenue quieting him the hell down. Of course, that was after he fled the country. Never mind. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, he intervened in, in protests. And he was, his public persona was peach, preaching peace and love. But in private, with women, it was a different, it was a different face. It was a different person. And his important work never produced anything of any consequence. He wrote a single book which had no title other than the uh, Library of Congress number assigned to it, uh, the critical the critical opinions about the book were dismal, and it sold out of 10,000 in print, it sold about 2,000 copies. Okay. And that was that was his soul, you know, soul the sole thing he produced, and it was awful. Right. One of the things I I think in reading the pleadings that he filed and wrote pro se in his state and federal appeals, he was very intelligent and he could uh, absorb a lot of information and Mm -hmm. digest a lot of information and then regurgitate that information, but he had Mm -hmm. no analytical capabilities whatsoever. Okay. So if he read a court case, he would pick that sentence that he wanted the court to think entitled him to relief out of that case, and that's all he would ever see. He would not see how the facts of the case differed from his, were similar to his. There's no there's no comparison. You know, there's no distinction. Right. He just could not analyze any of the data that he took in. Um, and so when you want to talk and you just talk and talk and talk and talk, but you don't answer questions and there's no discourse or debate with anyone, that's Ira. If people had questions or doubts, he shut them down. No, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. And then they just wouldn't listen to the other person's argument. No, no. And it it would be something more like you're just not intelligent enough to understand this. Ah, got you. You know, Um, so then there's also a lot of controversy and it was pretty much settled at his trial through the rebuttal testimony of a witness who was a friend of his until 1971, perhaps when he strangled uh, Rita, um, he did not found Earth Day. 
Really? He was approached in Philadelphia because of his connections. And first of all, let's get this straight, too. Ira was a medium-sized fish in the little pond that was Philadelphia. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, as far as the hippie movement went. Because the hippie movement in Philadelphia wasn't really all that big or substantial. Um, yeah. Not what you would have found in Haight Ashbury, or even Los Angeles, or or anything around there. So let's get that straight. He was approached because he did have a lot of contacts. He was friends with Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, um, and he was approached, but he was thrown out of the organizational planning because he was trying to dominate the planning. Hmm. And it was his way or the highway. Hmm. And so he was, you know, taken out of that process. He was asked to uh, introduce one person, and I think it was Allen Ginsberg, a hippie poet. Um, and he came on stage. He rambled incoherently for about 30 minutes. And then later on, he commandeered the stage a second time, and when the guest, Senator Muskie, was supposed to come on and speak, Iris got a band playing and refuses to relinquish the stage. Damn. Okay. And then somebody had to come on stage, tell the band to stop, and bring Senator Muskie on. Because, you know, something Ira didn't realize or or didn't understand or perhaps didn't care because it wasn't his idea in order for environmental change to occur, they needed legislators. Right, state absolutely. and federal, in order to start enacting change in the laws of how we conduct ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when you look at environmental law, it wasn't until the early 1990s that we really had any trends toward recycling or you know clean air or or any of those things but a lot of that comes through legislation not through Ira yak 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 and people's ears off so yeah he did not found Earth Day he participated in the Earth Day 1970 uh, inaugural Thing. And then he was never asked back again and never involved in anything. And then he tried to have a what he called a Sunday, um, a, like a competing or a competing group, and that was a bust. Okay. So um, Ira had no income and no job. He was ingratiating himself with corporate uh, corporate presidents, corporations, local government, and some would give him stipends. He supposedly taught at a free university, mm-hmm. which he later went on to say he founded, which is untrue. Um, but uh, I don't know that he had any income. You know, he got stipends enough to pay rent, which was like $100 a month. Right. 
and keep a phone. And uh, once he was living with Holly, they both lived very frugally. Um, Yeah, and he had no job. He would get up at nine. He would go have breakfast. He would read. um, He would entertain people in his bath. He would answer the door naked. Um, Just, you know, kind of an odd Odd, odd duck. Yeah, he definitely did not have the figure to be answering his door naked. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. You know, every time, every time I read about an incident where he answered the door naked, my thought was always, I wish I had been there because I would have looked him in the eye and said, Ira, put your clothes on. Nobody wants to see that. Exactly. He was some kind of ladies' man. I don't see how. Sometimes. I mean, I really, honest to God, don't see how. And as misogynistic as he was, he probably wasn't really that good, if you know what I mean. Trust me, I'm taking up what you're putting down. Okay, so um, so he meets Holly in 1972. She was 25. He was 32. Um, so, uh, and they were both born in May. So their birthdays were relatively close together. Um, they, like I said, had a stormy relationship and, you know, with Holly, it was, she was already a little on the low self-esteem spectrum, I guess, because as beautiful as she was and as intelligent as she was. And as well-liked as she was by everyone who knew her, she never felt worthy of that. And perhaps she hadn't found her place in the world. Mm-hmm. And so uh, but he was very unkind. He would tell her, you know, when she wasn't um, uh, satisfied after they had sex, he would tell her it's her fault. Oh, wow. And he would, you know, he would put her down and criticize her, telling her that he's trying to build her up. Of course she is. When, you know, what she needed was someone who supported her. And, you know, if she failed at something, said it's okay, you tried. It's all right. You'll get it next time. Right. Exactly. But if she failed at something, he he would just harp on her. Mm. Um, and you know, some of his friends remarked how horribly unkind he was. You know, he would tell her, "Shut up. Nobody wants to hear you." Wow. When she would try to contribute to a conversation, and most of the time, he expected her to just sit there and look pretty and keep her mouth shut. Hmm. And uh, Holly had a bit of a summer streak. And so, you know, I think that she resisted that. And they broke up many times, uh, including her returning to Tyler. She, he was able to, to con her. He was a con man, I think. Well, baby, like I said, I, exactly. As intelligent as he was, he had no insight. He had no empathy. Um, you know, it was Ira's world. 
he was the star of the show, and you know she was a an uncredited extra mm. in his life. And when you're in a relationship with a person, with a woman or a man, that's not how it is. In a relationship, you're equal partners, and that's the only way it's ever going to work. I agree. Um, so. In 1973, Ira and Holly traveled to Tyler, Texas to spend time with her family. And Ira did the best he could to try and destroy her relationship with her family by forcing her father to throw him out of the house. Oh, wow. He was rude. He spoke to Holly in a way that her sister said... She never would have tolerated that from any of us. You know, like, she's with her sisters. They're reminiscing. Iris sitting in a chair watching TV with his feet up so nobody else can see the TV. And he calls, for somebody who didn't own a TV, it's like, if you don't want a TV in your own house, why are you watching it? Right. In somebody else's house. Okay. You're just being a dick. Right, exactly. And so he he demands Holly come over and brush his hair. And he didn't want to learn anything about Holly's life or about her family. Um, And then, even though they were supposed to stay a couple more days, suddenly on about the third day, Iris says, okay, we got to go. And they leave, and that's it. And that was the last time Holly saw her family. So, because I guess in the intervening years between 1973 and 1977, she wasn't able to travel uh, to Tyler again. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in the late summer, early fall, or late summer of uh, 1977, Ira and Holly traveled to England. He was meeting some groups, you know. He was involved in these, like, new age groups. Um, right. Psychic groups and things like that. And they were he was involved with some meetings with that. Maybe he was a, a, le- a guest lecturer at a university. Um. But they went to England, and somewhere during that trip, Holly had been seeing a counselor and had been working on getting herself stronger and, you know, finding a way to end her relationship with Einhorn once and for all because she knew it was not healthy. And uh, they were in England, and finally I think that's where she found her strength. And so... She left England, went back to the United States, and went to a friend's and stayed on Fire Island. Um, Mm -hmm. She had met a guy by the name of Saul Lapidus, and she started spending time with him on his boat, and they began a relationship. On September 9th, Einhorn made a call to Holly in which he screamed at her that if she didn't come get her stuff, he was going to throw it all out into the street. 
Holly made calls. She tried to find people to go get her things from the apartment. No one was available. So she traveled from New York to Philadelphia to get her things. She arrived with the intention of getting her things from the apartment. And Ira grabbed her and they went out with another couple to see the movie Star Wars. And late on the night of the 9th or early on the morning of the 10th, they returned to the Race Street apartment, and that's the last time anybody saw Holly alive. Yeah, I can imagine. So, um, in the intervening days... Pardon? Not quite the smartest thing you can do to uh, go ahead and still go on a date with them. Well, you see, the thing is, she, Holly told Saul that she was going to go get her thing. She didn't think Einhorn would hurt her, um, that he, you know, she had to go get him off the wall, but it mm-hmm. had happened before, and it had always worked out okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, between you and me, I wish Saul had insisted on going with her. Agreed. Because if he had been with her, Ira would not have had the balls to do shit. I wish one of the men uh, in the, you know, circle of friends, instead of saying, oh, no, I don't have time, had made time to go with Holly to get her things. And like I said, Ira would not have had the balls to do anything with a man there with her. I agree. Because he wouldn't want to ruin his image. Because like Jody Arias, his image is everything. Right. And he doesn't want to ruin that image. So, um, yeah, Holly vanished on late September 9th or early September 10th. And, like I said, she went to the movie probably hoping to placate him. Mm-hmm. Give him his way, do what he wants, and then, you know, he'll he'll come down off the wall and I can get my things and, and be done. Right. And I'm sure you've been through breakups. Yeah. And perhaps you've been through breakups with some chick that was bat crap crazy over it. Yeah. And so if she had said, no, I'm going to get my things, fuck you, it would have made it worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wouldn't have gone to the movie. She would have died sooner. True. So, like I said, going to the movie was a, an attempt to placate him, especially the fact that they were with another couple. So, uh, in the next days and weeks, Einhorn gave conflicting stories. Initially, he told people that he was in the bath of the shower. Holly called through the door and said she was going to make a phone call at the co-op, even though he had a phone in his apartment, um, and that she never came back. And then when people said, what do you mean she never came back, and, you know, you haven't heard from her, then he said, oh, yeah, okay, she called me the next day and said, I don't want you looking for me. Leave me alone. And that was it. Um, He was not, while... 
later on, he says this devastated him. It was awful. It was the worst thing that ever happened to him. He never really gave any indication contemporaneously that her disappearing even was a blip on his radar. Because it wasn't about Ira. It was about Holly. So um, sometime during the next several weeks, Einhorn tried to get help from two young women to take the trunk and dump it in the Schuylkill River or take it to a dump. And the women did not want to be involved. He claimed there were KGB papers in the trunk. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody ever saw these papers. And then um, he also tried to get his manager of his apartment mm-hmm. complex or the owner of the apartment building to help him move the trunk. But luckily he had a bad back, and so he declined to assist. And then toward the end of September, there was an odor coming from the second floor apartment in the back. Mm-hmm. And the, there was fluid coming through the ceiling into a downstairs pantry in the first floor back apartment. The owner contacted a roofer. The roofer checked the building and thought there's some kind of dead animal somewhere in the wall. And more likely than not, it's gotten itself somewhere in that second floor area between the pantry and the closet above. Right. Einhorn refused to allow the apartment owner or the roofer to access the closet in his apartment, which was padlocked. Huh. So... Uh, keep that in mind. Make a note of that. Yeah. Padlock closet. Okay. Um, over these, you know, the fall, Holly missed family birthdays. There were like three people with birthdays in October in her family, and she didn't contact one of them. She was an artist, and she would draw handmade cards for people, and nobody got their card. Um, there was no... Her family reported her missing in Philadelphia PD. They talked to Ira, and then they pretty much let it drop. Because in 1977, you know, adults could go off if they wanted to go off and not tell anybody. And police agencies were not particularly concerned. Um, But once again, the statements he made to Philadelphia PD at that time conflicted with some of the statements he had made to friends and Holly's family. Then in the winter of 77 and 78, Holly missed Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. Her family ended up hiring a private investigator in Texas who was a former FBI agent, and he hired a gentleman in Philadelphia who may have also been a former FBI agent. I'm not really sure. Uh, But together, they went and started interviewing people. Um, Significant is that Einhorn refused to cooperate cooperate with these private investigators. Absolutely refused to talk to them and give them any information. 
he discouraged his friends and his social circle from talking to these people and giving them any information. But they were able to talk to his neighbors, and the neighbor in the first floor apartment below his reported in late September hearing screams or a blood-curdling scream and thumps coming from the Einhorn apartment. And there were other witnesses who were friends of Holly who reported seeing her with bruises, a black eye once or twice, and other signs of physical abuse. Uh, Those witnesses also reported the emotional abuse because she was subjected to emotional abuse almost from day one. I mean, he would read her diary and write comments in like black sharpie or threats in black sharpie if he didn't like an event that she was chronicling in her journal or he didn't think that she you know he didn't want her to chronicle that particular event right so um you know it was it was controlling and domineering and it had she taken his journals and read them um there would have been hell to pay. And he never, even though he said, we have to do this so that we trust each other, he never offered to let her read his journals. Of course um, Then um, finally in late February or early March of 1979, uh, oh, another thing that happened during the fall, winter, is Guests in the apartment were ordered by Einhorn to stay away from the padlock closet. Okay. Um, then Einhorn, the investigators located, identified, and located two former girlfriends of Einhorn who were, you know, Rita and Judy, who had been attacked by Ira when they ended their relationships with him and assaulted by Ira when they tried to end their relationships with him. So they compiled all their information that they'd gotten during their investigation, and it was like a a thick dossier, and they took it to the Philadelphia Police Department, and the Inspector Michael Chitwood, who was assigned the case and who was assigned to review the dossier, said if I had any doubts, they were completely resolved after he read the dossier. There was no doubt in his mind at that point that Ira Einhorn had killed Holly Maddox in September of 1977, and it was just a matter of finding where he had put her body. With the dossier, and, and the thing that's most impressive about the dossier is that alone had significant evidence that was sufficient to meet the probable cause standard required for a search warrant. Under the fourth amendment, which says a lot about the investigation done by those investigators. Because usually something like that, the police have to take, the investigation, they have to kind of corroborate everything. Right. 
And in this case, no corroboration necessary. The information met probable cause. Um, also, during that time, probably before the dossier was passed to Philadelphia PD, um, Einhorn was trying to convince friends that his apartment had been broken into. I guess he realized that the you know people were talking to the investigators and they were mm-hmm. going to figure something out. And so yeah. then he starts trying to create a an explanation. Um, the problem is is that he was creating the explanation about eighteen months too late. Right. He 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 can't but, create an alibi after something's already been established. Uh, it makes no sense. I, again, the 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 analytical, you know, like he he stood in line for intelligence. He skipped the line for humility. He skipped the line for empathy, and he obviously skipped the line for analytical capability. Yeah, he because just if went he had a shred of analytical capability. The day Holly disappeared. It would have been like, and I I went out to the to the to get lunch at the restaurant. And when I came back, there was a padlock on my closet, and my apartment had been broken into. You know, I mean, I don't think but, that would. Okay, we'll but... we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. <laughs> so, okay. on March 28, 1979, about nine o'clock in the morning, the police arrived with their search warrant to search Ira Einhorn, uh, Ira Einhorn's apartment that he had shared with Holly uh, Maddox at 3411 Race Street, Apartment C. Uh, Einhorn answered the door in an open robe. Oh, dear God. Um, which I'm sure was unpleasant for those gentlemen. Um, the police entered the apartment. They went to the closet. Confronted with the padlock, they asked Ira Einhorn if he had a key for the padlock, and he said he did not. So Chitwood removed the hasp from the doorframe. So he didn't disturb the lock. He just right. took a crowbar and pulled the, pulled the hasp from the doorframe. He opens the door to the closet. And inside the closet, there are boxes of Holly's belongings. He starts removing boxes. He starts examining the contents. And in the course of doing that, he finds a purse containing Holly's Holly's driver's license, her bank information, um, her journals, artwork, clothing. Everything was in the closet behind a padlock. Once... They get everything out of the closet. Um, they are confronted with a trunk that is locked. Again, shit would ask if Einhorn has a key for the trunk, and he says he does not. So, shit would break the lock on the trunk, and he opens the trunk, and there are newspapers. Some of them dated in August but some of them dated up to September 15th, 1977. They're all local papers, I believe. Um, 
He moves those aside. There are air fresheners. There are styrofoam peanuts. And he's moving things aside. And then he finds a mummified hand reaching up. And realizes that Holly has been in a trunk in Ira Einhorn's apartment, locked in a trunk, locked in a closet for 18 months. Um, he walks out of the closet. They, you know, they're contacting the medical examiner and additional crime scene people to get there. Although in 1977, crime scene and forensic technology were not what they are today. Right. And uh, he walks out and yeah, he right. says to Ira Einhorn, well, we found Holly. And Ira Einhorn looks at him and says, you found what you found. What a dick. And then at some point, they find the key to the padlock and the trunk hanging in the kitchen. Yet again, a, I said, a, what a dick. You know, he's, he's not even a good liar. You know, I mean, you know, why lie when the, the keys are right there? But see, I think Ira thought he was so well connected that he was above the law. Honestly, I don't even I don't even give it that. Honest to God, I believe he just thought that they'd go away if he said no. So for a smart, smart, smart man, he was stupid. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. In some ways for, for as incredibly intelligent as he seemed to be, he was incredibly stupid many times. Um, we'll get to another one of those in a couple minutes. <laughs> um, do you want to take a quick break? Let's do it, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening All to right. Clearing, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Clean Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. We'll be right back after this. Like Cataclysm, Ace of Mota, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Ray, and 
Insane Shane and current AWO champion D-Mike as they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available and this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping and accessories? Then check out the guys at sub Own Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at sub Own Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. sub Own Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Think of a song choice. I almost laughed, but I mean, obviously, it's not funny. But you know, it's apropos for what movie they went and seen that night. That was why I, I wanted to do um, Pink Floyd. You better run. That would have been good uh, on all levels. I I decided not to make it about Ira. Yeah, that, was a, that would have been you know, pretty good on all levels, though. Yeah, it would have been. I mean, and then there's a, a really good one by Stained, but um, I just, I, I decided to go with Star Wars. Right. <laughs> so, all right. So, on March 28th, uh, Ira was arrested, and, of course, there was a lot of publicity but it was actually pro Ira. <clears throat> so, um, because again, his public persona was one that people thought uh, would, would, you know, was peace and love and not, uh, you know, violent, controlling, domineering, misogynist. What? Although anybody who knew him and saw how he treated women should have made the connection. Um, now, interestingly, while he was in jail, um, after he'd been charged with first-degree murder, he actually gave an interview to a Philadelphia newspaper in which he admitted that the steamer trunk was his 
and he started trying to float a CIA conspiracy theory. Oh, good Lord. In which, um, and this was actually after uh, somebody, you know, his rich friend set up a defense fund, and former DA Arlen Specter, he was a Philadelphia city or Philadelphia county DA, uh, was retained to represent him. And right after that happened, he gave an interview and admitted the trunk was his and tried to float his CIA conspiracy theory. So Iris' theory is that, that the CIA killed Holly and then planted her body in his trunk, which he claimed contained KGB papers, uh, to discredit him because he's doing this research and, and work on Cold War and psychic weaponry. Oh, and, you know, I'd just like to say, if the NSA, the NSA, if you're listening, if the CIA is taking people and training them to blow up people with their minds, uh, sign me up. Right. That would be bad. I have my own list. <laughs> and if you could teach me to do it remotely, even better. Yeah, we're um, <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, so that was his thing. Um, on April third, there was a bail hearing. Ironic, isn't it? And pillars of the Philadelphia community appeared and testified that Ira Einhorn was a peace-loving, gentle man who would never hurt a fly or a flea, and he wasn't a danger to the community, and he didn't commit this crime. He loved Holly so much. Oh, and no. the judge was convinced to You're set kidding. Ira Einhorn's bail on first-degree murder at $40,000. Oh, good Lord. I give and since only, since only 10% had to be put up, Ira Einhorn's good friend, Barbara Bronfen, the heir or, or the wife of one of the heirs, Bronfman, who is the wife of one of the heirs to the Seagram fortune, posted the $4,000 cash bond, and then Einhorn's parents guaranteed the remaining $36,000. Now, Ira's from a middle-class family. I think his father was a, a, a manager, you know, worked in a managerial position in a a factory manufacturing, something along those. Right. So Ira wasn't from a wealthy family. Yeah, Ira did not come from Maine. <laughs> um, now they they probably owned their their they probably owned their home. Well, I mean, back then it wasn't that hard. But they weren't, like I said, they weren't wealthy, and they were probably, you know, I was in his 30s. They were probably reaching, you know, retirement age. Um, Pre-trial, there was some anti-Einhorn sentiment, but the majority of it was actually pro-Einhorn because, again, he had this public persona uh, that was beyond reproach. And, of course, this is in the days when domestic violence was not as 
widely condemned as it is today, nor was it as widely recognized. Right. It was kind of swept under the rug type of thing. Correct. Um, It was nobody's business. And sometimes it was her fault. So... She should have had the same um, when I got home. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the thing, the thing that the defense had to do, the defense was going to have to explain the padlock and the lock trunk in the closet. And Iris' CIA conspiracy theory is not going to do it, especially given that there's a roughly 18-month period in which he's living in the apartment with the padlock on the closet door refusing to allow the roofer into the apartment to get into the closet Not to and warning people away from the door. How does he explain not knowing what's in the closet? Um, and it was probably shortly after the interview where he admits to owning the trunk that uh, Arlen Specter, who was getting ready to run for U.S. Senate, withdrew from um, Einhorn's case, and Norris Gelman took over the defense. Uh, mm-hmm. During the period between his release in April of 1979 and um, January 1981, he did travel outside the United States and requested permission from the court to do so and was allowed to do so, but he always returned. They filed several pretrial motions. I don't know what the precise nature of those was, but they weren't having any success. They weren't getting evidence suppressed um, they weren't winning any points in their uh, defense by eliminating prosecution evidence mm-hmm. and personally I suspect that Arlen Specter and or Norris Gelman that they were trying to go the route of a plea to a lesser Right. Correct. Manslaughter, for example. Um, To, because first degree murder, it may be entirely circumstantial, but it's some damn strong circumstances when you get right down to it. And so in January of 1981, Ira went to Canada, and I believe he did have permission to go to Canada for some conference or meeting or whatever in the New Age arena. Um, But instead of returning to Philadelphia, he instead went to Ireland. And missed an appearance in court that was to be a trial setting to set a date for the trial, the murder trial. 
when he missed the appearance, the judge issued a bench warrant. And then when the Philadelphia police went to serve the bench warrant, that's when they determined that Ira had taken off. He sold the, his vehicle. I thought he didn't own a vehicle, so he took a vehicle from a woman and sold it. He cleared out his bank accounts, and he left. Um, the judge, Judge Ribner, who was also for a period of time judging the Mamiya Abu-Jamal case, um, he basically continued the trial without date. And so every so often they would appear in court and, you know, the trial would be continued without date. Because of Einhorn's flight, you know, Einhorn's the one who set this in motion when he left the jurisdiction. And right. a fact that he he will never admit, in fact, he tries to downplay it, is that flight evidences consciousness of guilt. He claims, I didn't flee. I didn't think I was going to get a fair trial, and so I left. It's like, motherfucker, that's flight. Right. <laughs> you know, you did flee. You're... Your, you know, your self-serving reason for doing so does not negate the fact that you fled. Um, so, in uh, initially, Einhorn and a girlfriend were in Dublin, Ireland, and they rented a room from a man by the name of Dennis Weir, who was a college professor. Shortly after they started renting the room in Weir's house, it was like a, a grandmother-in-law's uh, apartment on the property, Weir and his wife traveled to Chicago, Illinois. When they let Einhorn know that they were going to be going to Chicago and that they might go to Philadelphia, he said, I prefer that you not mention my name. Huh. Okay. And he tried to tell them that he had been framed for damage to property uh, arising from some protest that he was involved in or something like that. It's like he admitted that he was a fugitive, but not a fugitive from a first-degree murder charge. Right. Um, while in the United States, they, they talked to a friend in Chicago, and the friend in Chicago actually was able to informed them that Einhorn was a fugitive from a first-degree murder charge. When Weir and his wife returned to Ireland, Weir went to the Garda in Dublin, and he said, this guy's a fugitive from the United States. He's living in an apartment. I I don't want him there. I think he needs to go back to the U.S. And unfortunately, at that time, there was no extradition treaty with Ireland. You could be extradited from Ireland, but it was a different process, and it was on a case-by-case basis, and the problem was that because there was no extradition treaty, the Garda would have had no grounds to arrest and hold Ira Einhorn pending a request for extradition. Um, At this point, a gentleman by the name of Rich DiBenedetto is working on 
tracking Einhorn down and bringing him back to face trial. And um, he was he was really good at putting himself in Einhorn's head and knowing mm-hmm. where he might be. And you know, once they tracked him down to a you know like a location, um, they know he's going to be near a university because that's where he's most comfortable. Um, but he was usually a couple steps ahead most of the time. Um, anyway, once the Garda couldn't do anything, and Garda is what the police in Ireland are called. Once they couldn't do anything because of the lack of an extradition treaty, Weir went back to the apartment and told Ira, get your shit and get out. While in Dublin, Ironhorn had affairs with numerous women, uh, picking up some probably right in front of the girlfriend who had fled with him from the United States. Uh, she decided to end her relationship. Hmm? Put her life on the line to do so. Correct. Correct. Um, and all this time he's living, a, you know, abroad, he's got Barbara Bronfman, Bronfman paying the bills. Wow. And so at some point, I think in 1984, the girlfriend decided to end the relationship with him. She told police when she was interviewed that she suspected that she was becoming more of a hindrance than a help. And so Einhorn had no problem letting her go. Um, It was also at this point, because Weir had discovered who Einhorn really was, that Einhorn adopted the name Ben Moore as an alias. Um, He traveled to England, and then he traveled to Stockholm, Sweden, and at some point he adopted the name Eugene Malin, or Malin, uh, from an Irish friend of his, and I suspect that the Irish friend allowed him to have legitimate papers in adopting this name. Because during the search for Einhorn, or during the the brouhaha that became, that uh, arose when he was eventually captured, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Mallon ran from a journalist seeking to interview him. He did not want to talk. So I think there was some complicity there. Um, And while he was in Stockholm, he met a woman by the name of Annika Flodden. And Annika was from a rich family in Sweden. And so she had a lot of money, and she had a lot of money from her family. And in around 1987, he married Annika Flodden. Now, like I said, during this time, uh, there... The police are getting uh, Rich DiBenedetto is getting, you know, bits and pieces of information, but he's one step behind. So they couldn't get uh, they couldn't get Einhorn initially when he was in Dublin, and then after the extradition treaty, after an extradition treaty was signed and ratified and came into effect, um, when Irish authorities went to arrest him. He was gone. He had gone to England and then to Stockholm. 
Um, they oh, also boy. had a tip that he was in Stockholm with Annika Flodden by Barbara Bronfman because apparently once he had Annika's money, he didn't need Barbara's anymore. And so Barbara contacted authorities and told authorities, <laughs> you know, oh. they, you know what they say, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Right. Um, in May of 1988, Fred Maddox Jr. took his own life. He His health had gone down pretty much since Holly's body was discovered, and they knew that she was dead. Um, his wife also, her, she started experiencing various health issues. Um, in June of 1990, she passed away uh, from emphysema. And it was actually after uh, Mr. and Mrs. Maddox passed away that the district attorney in Philadelphia realized that if they didn't try Einhorn now, they might never be able to get justice for Holly. Right. Because witnesses die, they, you know, they they move and they don't keep in touch, and we don't know how to find them, and or they just frankly forget. Um. So, the DA requested permission to try Einhorn and Absentia, and you know, there's a lot of criticism of that. However, the reason he was tried in Absentia was because he fled. 12 years before and had managed to avoid recapture by taking on assumed names and apparently having some connections that were maybe tipping him off to the fact that Interpol knew where he was so that he could get out before they caught him. So you know, right. if he'd stayed in January of 1981 and had his case set for trial, I think there's a very good possibility if he wasn't acquitted, he would have only been convicted under a manslaughter. Given the fact that, you know, they had this stormy relationship that Holly was trying to end. Um, so... The prosecution during the trial in absentia, Norris Gelman was ordered to defend Einhorn at his own cost, uh, perhaps because there was a suspicion that he knew of Ira Einhorn's plans to flee. Okay. And um, the prosecution presented evidence to a jury of Einhorn's emotional and physical abuse of Rita, Judy, and Holly, the circumstances of Holly's disappearance, pardon me, Einhorn's inconsistent statements regarding that disappearance, the odor and the body fluid coming from Einhorn's apartment, and the fact that Holly's body was found in a locked trunk that Einhorn admitted belonged to him in a locked trunk in a locked closet within Ira Einhorn's apartment. Um, At that time, they didn't really have any physical evidence from Holly's body or trunk that 
linked Einhorn to the murder or even really forensically corroborated the theory that her body decomposed in the trunk. So, of course, Einhorn's defense focused on the fact that there was no direct evidence of his involvement. There was no scientific evidence that corroborated the state's case or the witness's testimony and that there was reasonable doubt. Significantly, though, Norris Gelman did not try to put on the CIA conspiracy theory as a defense. Mm -hmm. Uh, The jury, in I think it was about two hours of deliberation, the jury convicted Einhorn, and the judge sentenced him to life in prison. There's kind of a gray area as to whether or not he would have been eligible for the death penalty. In 1977, when he committed the murder, there was no death penalty in Pennsylvania because they hadn't reinstated it yet after Furman or Gregg. However, in 1979, when the crime was discovered, there was a death penalty. And so the argument could have been made that because in some... In some situations, it doesn't really matter when you died. It's when your body's discovered. Yeah, that sounds like no gray area to you me. Know, I, I've, had, I, I've had, I know of a situation with a, a friend of a friend of the family whose daughter disappeared and her body was discovered about 18 months, 20 months after she disappeared. And her date of death is the date her body was found. Not right. the date she went missing. Right. So, um, but uh, that, you know, whether or not the Philadelphia DA would have made that argument had had Einhorn go to trial, went gone to trial, I don't know. They didn't seek the death penalty because they were trying in at him in at absentia. So. Um, once he was convicted, uh, attorneys filed appeals on his behalf, but those appeals were not allowed by the Superior Court or the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. I guess because Einhorn was not present and was not serving his sentence uh, at that mm. time. Um the exact time that Einhorn and Annika settled uh, in the Champagne-Mouton-Bordeaux region of France is not known. It may be 94-95. I'm not really sure. Annika bought a converted mill. Um, Champagne-Mouton is near Cognac, France. Right. If that means anything to anyone. Uh, but yeah, they're living in the French countryside in Bordeaux. And in 1997, Annika, whose name had been provided by Barbara Bronfman, Bronfman applied for a driver's license in France. Um, I think what she did was she sought to have her Swedish license transferred to France. Right. But at any rate, when the name Annika Flodden Einhorn or Annika Flodden Milan 
appeared on the radar, Interpol was all over it. Oh yeah. And they contacted the the they contacted Philadelphia. Philadelphia got an extradition warrant together or an extradition request together and Rich Benedetto and I think an American um, Interpol liaison traveled to uh, the Bordeaux region and on June 13th, 1997, French police stormed the cottage and arrested Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel. Finkel is Einhorn. <laughs> See, I don't get that. I, I saw that the other day on Twitter. I don't get it. Uh, of course, I'm not a fan of Jim Carrey. Yeah, exactly. And I'm especially not a fan of uh, of Ace. Pet yeah, Ace Ventura Pet Detective is what that's from. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> um, so then the extradition process, which was quite long and quite convoluted begins. Um, The French court refused in 1997 to extradite Einhorn because he had been tried in absentia. And they essentially ignored the fact that the only reason he was tried in absentia was because he fled prior to his trial in 1981 Um. And so Einhorn, in December of 1997, was released from jail. However, he was required to report to authorities in uh, Bordeaux, I believe, due to his immigration violation. And I suspect perhaps that he, his papers that he traveled on were taken away from him. And during this, luckily, during this period of time, French police were keeping a close eye on him. For the first time in 16 years, Ira was allowed to be Ira Einhorn. So he was allowed to hold court with journalists, and he was allowed to, um, you know, talk to his attorneys and get the attorneys to get the, the radical groups behind him to try and keep him from ever being extradited from France. Um, So in 1998, the Philadelphia District Attorney, which is part of the executive branch of government, requested that the Pennsylvania legislature amend the Post-Conviction Relief Act to allow fugitives who were tried in absentia to request and be granted a new trial upon their return to Pennsylvania. Ah. And I believe that while it was crafted due to the situation with Ira Einhorn, because he's the first fugitive tried in absentia. So they're dangling in a little Pennsylvania. Right. Well, no, 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 it's not exactly that. He's the first fugitive tried in absentia who was located and who was who Pennsylvania sought to extradite from a foreign country. 
but this would apply to anybody. If somebody flees uh, Pennsylvania, if somebody fled Pennsylvania in 1989 and they're caught and extradited from England or France or Sweden and they too had been tried in absentia, they would have an equal right under the Post-Conviction Relief Act to ask for a new trial and obtain a new trial. Yeah, but let's be honest, Lisa. You know as well as I do they did it for Ira. Well, yeah, they did it for Ira because Ira is the first time they've had that situation. Right, and they did it to... That's the first time they've encountered the situation. It's just like, it's no different than the way states had to enact legislation prohibiting use of cell phones while driving. Right. Because up until that point, nobody had cell phones. So, yes, it was the Einhorn Law, and he should be happy to have his name attached to something that is actually tangible. Right. You know, um, so they amended the PCRA, which cured the sole stumbling block to extradition. Of course, on behalf of Einhorn, his American and French attorneys argued to the court in Bordeaux that the amendment of the PCRA statute was unconstitutional. However, their argument was really kind of um, kind of nonsensical. While in, in PCRA is Post-Conviction Relief Act, so PCRA, a court has the option of undoing a final criminal judgment if the court finds constitutional violations infected the original trial. Right. They're arguing that there's no there's no, you know, there's no right for the legislature to do that or for any court to do that, but that's untrue. Because post-conviction relief is exactly that. A subsequent court is undoing a valid judgment that passed muster on direct appeal and either was not review was not sought or review was not granted by the U.S. Supreme Court. And so the conviction and sentence become final at that point. So basically what they're arguing is any post-conviction statute is unconstitutional. <clears throat> because once a, once a judgment is final, it's final. There's nobody, there's nothing anybody can do about it. Right. That's that the gist of their right. argument. That's- and you know, in the right. And so the court in Bordeaux uh, recommended once that defect of in absentia trial was cured, they ordered that Einhorn be uh, extradited. Einhorn appealed to another court, which denied his appeal, uh, because basically a French court is not going to decide the constitutionality or lack thereof of a a law in the United States that's not in their you know that's not in their wheelhouse 
they would decide French law, but not whether a law in the United States is constitutional. Uh, that's up to the state Supreme Court. And then um, the president, of once the extradition was granted by the court, the president signed the order finalizing the extradition. Uh, our Einhorn appealed to another court, which denied the appeal, again, passing on the issue of whether the amendment to the PCRA was constitutional or not. And so then Einhorn put on a show for the press. And I think you've seen those pictures. I don't know if I posted a picture on the page. But basically, Einhorn took a kitchen knife, probably a butter knife, and he cut, he made cuts on his neck. Assuming if you look on the pictures, it, it, if you look on the pictures, it looks bad, but he didn't get the carotid artery, and he didn't get the jugular vein. And even though it looks like he has severe damage in the front of his neck, around the Adam's apple, he didn't hurt his vocal cords. And he brings the press into the kitchen, and he's sitting there with his legs splayed in a blood-covered shirt saying, the president of France did this. I'm the victim. I'm being framed. And the president, this is his fault. He did this. Like, no, asshole, you did it to put on a show for the press. And so his final appeal of the president's extradition order was denied. And on July 20th, 2001, Ira Einhorn was taken into custody by French police. He was handed over to American law enforcement who then traveled back to Pennsylvania with him. And when he got off that plane, he did not look happy. Well, I can imagine. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I posted that picture. I downloaded a bunch of pictures and then I, I get afraid of putting too many pictures in. Because I don't want to freeze up the the program. Oh no, you're and fine. So... <laughs> oh, dude, I I always put at least fifteen. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, I do. <laughs> I was going to say I do uh, way more pictures than you or Brad put together. So, <laughs> but yeah, I I kind of try to keep it around fifteen. Because I found when I've done more than that, I get like a glitch when I'm trying to save the page. Got you. So yeah. I think um, it's anyway, yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah. So but yeah, I put there's a picture of him, and you know, just Google Ira Einhorn, go to images, and there's a picture of him coming off the plane, and I swear if looks could kill, a lot of people would have probably died. Right there on the spot because he looks pissed. Yeah, I'm um, sure he was. So, 
pre-trial uh, in September, Ira Einhorn filed a PCRA petition which requested a new trial pursuant to that Einhorn's law. He simultaneously challenged the constitutionality of that law. So here's a situation where he wanted to have his cake, excuse me, and eat it too. He wanted the benefit of a new trial, but he wanted the law declared unconstitutional so that he could go back to France and avoid ever being prosecuted for Holly Maddox's murder. Um, His request for a new trial was granted pursuant to that law, and the state Supreme Court denied his request to review the constitutionality of that PCRA amendment. What he really should have done was he should have come back and just focused on, and this is one of the reasons that I think his analytical skills are lacking, because he he thinks he's the smartest person in the room. Right. And even topics he's never had any experience with whatsoever, like law, he thinks he knows everything. And so what he did is like, okay, we're going to ask for this due trial, but we're also going to tell the Supreme Court that this law is unconstitutional. What he should have done was challenge the constitutionality and then once that was decided, then taken advantage of the law. Nobody said he um, was smart. <laughs> uh, well, he, like I said, he was he was intelligent, but he was dumb. So his trial oh, started in. Wait, pardon? I said, wait. He said he was the smartest. Well, no, I think I think it's pretty well documented that he was very intelligent in a book sense sort of way. Right. And he, he had a lot of a ton of charisma. And he was a very effective manipulator. But he didn't have any analytical skills. So he couldn't use that intelligence to get himself out of a bad situation. And probably just pretended that the bad situation didn't exist the majority of the time. So, right. Um, so his trial started in around around September of 2002, and um, the prosecution presented once again his emotional and physical abuse not only of Holly but of Judy and Rita, the circumstances of Holly's disappearance the odor and fluid coming from his apartment body was found in a locked trunk in a locked closet. And see, that's the thing. That is the key piece of evidence that Einhorn has never, ever once offered any form of explanation for. Well, besides the CIA did it. But even the CIA did it does not explain how a lot a padlock could be on a closet door for a year, eighteen months, mm-hmm. and you don't 
tell anybody this is odd. I mean, frankly, if you walk into your apartment and you find a padlock on a closet door, I know if that were to happen in my house, the first thing I'd do is call NOPD. Yeah, I'm going to be like, uh, what the hell is this? And say, I just came home. I don't see any signs my house was broken into, but that padlock was not there when I left. What the hell is going on? Probably the first thing I would do, if I'm honest with you, is call my landlord and be like, uh, what'd you do? But past that, yes. If yeah. Landlord, uh, I, I, I had that happen when I came home and my house had been broken into. Mm-hmm. And my DVD player and a CD player and a bunch of CDs and DVDs were gone. I called my landlord. I said, did you and Andrew come over to my house and take some of my stuff for some reason? And he laughed. He says, what the hell do you, who do you, hell do you think I am? I said, I don't know, but I just came home. He said, your house was broken into. Get out of there and call the police. And so I was Holy. like, oh, shit, you're right. And I went out and I went to my neighbor's house and I called 911. Um, but, uh, and then they also had, by that time, they were able to get, uh, evidence, a testing method that was able to detect proteins in the trunk and in the surrounding floor. And that was, you know, some forensic evidence, scientific evidence that Holly's body decomposed in the trunk. Right. They also had a witness that had come forward perhaps after the 1993 trial who said that he knew Ira Einhorn and that Ira Einhorn, that after Holly disappeared, but before he was arrested, Ira Einhorn came to his bookstore to try to get a book on mummification. Wow, okay. Um. And then the defense, uh, the thing that hurt the defense the most was that Ira Einhorn testified in his own behalf. Oh, good Lord. What is with uh, this? Probably significantly against his attorney's advice. And so, of course, he testified that there was never any odor coming from that closet. Anybody who said there was was lying. There was never any fluid in the downstairs apartment. Well, I don't know how he would know that because he didn't live in the downstairs apartment. And that right. there was no evidence that Holly decomposed in the trunk. And then, of course, he gave the CIA a conspiracy theory. Uh, but again, he never explained the padlock on the door of the closet. He never explained when it got there. He never explained why he didn't contact authorities to try to determine who put it there. Um, you know, he never explained how Holly's body would have gotten in a trunk he owned that he claimed had KGB paperwork in it. And then he, you know, pretty much kind of uh, the the typical defense tactic that we see a lot is that all the prosecution witnesses are lying. They're jealous. Some were lesbians who wanted Holly and were jealous of Ira. Oh, and Lord, um, that he, he's the only person who can be believed. 
because he's the only person above reproach, right? Right, and you know the that uh, he even told them that he went, he left the United States in 1981 because he knew he wouldn't get a fair trial. That doesn't help you. It's like, well, okay. If you're that psychic, you just should have seen that your wife was going to try to get a driver's license in France is going to give your ass away. Um, interestingly enough, too, Annika Flodden, mm-hmm. once Ira was extradited, she stopped footing the bill for his attorneys. <laughs> so he ended up with, um, I think, public defenders. Well, and uh, they also wanted... They also wanted the judge to give Annika Flodden immunity so that she could travel to the United States and testify in Ira's behalf. Hmm. Um, and the judge wouldn't do that because the judge can't do that unless the prosecution offers immunity. And the prosecutor said, well, you know, I don't have any intent of charging her. But I'm sure there are other agencies that might, and I'm I'm not inclined to offer her immunity because her testimony. She met Ira years after Holly was murdered, so she doesn't have any information directly relevant to Holly's murder. Right. Aside from trying to bolster, you know, Iron Einhorn's character. Right. And There's no her information I, to offer. I would have loved to get her on the stand and ask her, have you ever tried to leave him? And if the answer to that is no, then you have no idea who you're dealing with. You know. And and then there were two um, defense witnesses. There was one who was a psychic who said that she had sensed at that time in September of 77 that both Holly and Einhorn were in grave danger. She couldn't say from whom. She couldn't say why. But she just sensed they were in danger. And then after Holly disappeared, Einhorn wanted her to travel to Philadelphia and stay with them. And she declined because she said, if I did that, I was going to be in danger too. And then there was a second witness who was just flaky. And mm-hmm. I think the only thing substantively that she really testified to was that she was in the apartment at some time and there was no odor from the closet. There was no odor in the apartment. Of course, hmm. woman, if Ira's in the apartment, there's going to be some odor. Right. Because he was well known and he for having really, really hey. strong... In spite of his bathing, whether it was not washing his clothes frequently, um, whether it was not using deodorants, you know, because some people do have, you know, even right after they get out of the bath, right. they have a an essence. <laughs> and <laughs> if they don't use powders or deodorants, that essence is, you know. Strong strong Um, but she was like when the prosecutor got up to cross-examine her according to the news and I these are from news accounts 
because I don't have any transcripts. She started giggling. She started and even what? the defense attorney said, you know, she's a throwback to those days of, of um, you know, flaky people. Mm-hmm. So, um, they also, the prosecution put on a rebuttal witness to counter uh, Einhorn's attempt to bolster his credibility or character by claiming to have been a founder of Earth Day. Okay. And um, also another thing is that Einhorn's diaries were read during his testimony. And there were some very disturbing passages about relationships ending in violence and attempting to kill Rita or attempting to kill Judy uh, were read to the jury. Um, And from what I understand, again, from articles during the trial, um, Iris' testimony, he did not make a good impression with the jurors. They saw him as arrogant and um, not worthy of belief. So the jury convicted him uh, around two hours, maybe a little bit less than two hours of deliberation, and the judge immediately sentenced him to life in prison. After the verdict, um, there were some interesting comments in the press, and I want to read a couple of them, um, especially from Holly's family, because uh, they were very – They were very telling. Um, The first one was from Holly's brother, John. He said, for the first time in his spoiled, selfish, worthless, egotistical life, he pays the price. He pays the piper like everyone else. Buffy, uh, Holly's sister, said a hole has been there for 25 years. But the blight that has been Ira Einhorn on our family for 25 years has been erased. And then Mary uh, Maddox, the youngest child, said Ira has ceased to exist now. Now he's a number, and that's fitting. And finally, Meg Wegman, um, the sister closest in age to Holly, said it's been well worth the wait. I'm feeling a little lighter now that I have in the last than I have in the last 25 years. Rich Benedetto said, I'm sorry they aren't, Holly Maddox's parents aren't here today. They died thinking the system had failed them. And let me see, I think there's, John Maddox really, I was like, you go John, when I read Right, that. absolutely. Um, the jury forewoman said, we didn't think his testimony was beneficial to him. The jury found inconsistencies in what we heard, we felt he conflicted some of his own statements. And then um, the ju- uh, Judge William Mazzola, describing Einhorn during his sentencing, called him an intellectual dilettante who preyed on the uninitiated, uninformed, un- unsuspecting, and inexperienced people. And let's see, okay, on uh, Einhorn filed, of course, a direct appeal 
with the Pennsylvania Superior Court, and he raised numerous issues. Uh, Once again, he claimed that uh, the evidence of the assault on Rita and Judy should not have been admitted. He challenged the constitutionality of the PCRA amendment uh, permitting a request for a new trial by a fugitive tried in in absentia. Um, He alleged prosecutorial misconduct claiming that prosecution gave Stephen Levy Einhorn's diaries and journals when they seized them and that enabled Levy to publish a book called The Unicorn Secret, Murder in the Age of Aquarius, which is an excellent book, by the way. Uh, it's available on Amazon, although I don't know if it's on Kindle. He also raised the issue of the uh, failure to grant immunity to Annika Flodden to assure her appearance at trial. And uh, also did the trial court err in precluding her to te- her testimony via satellite or web telecast. Um, mm-hmm. He raised an issue related to the trial court allowing the jurors to go home and gather belongings and get their affairs in order prior to reporting for sequestration. He raised a Fry uh, alleged violation of Fry regarding the testimony of a forensic scientist dealing with the human blood and protein in the trunk where the body was found. Um, He raised issues regarding jury instructions on um, the impact of the verdict on the family, involuntary manslaughter, and that the date of the killing in the indictment, the jury was not bound by that date. Right. Um, all of the issues were denied. All the issues were found to be to have no merit. Some of them were found to have no merit because they weren't supported by any evidence. For example, his claims that the prosecution gave his diaries to Levy was totally unsubstantiated. He didn't present any evidence of that trial. He didn't seek to call Levy. Uh, You know, he didn't do anything that would provide a a basis for claiming prosecutorial, for the court to find prosecutorial misconduct. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then most of the others, like the constitutionality of the PCRA, uh, amendment, they found that that was, you know, not unconstitutional. That the prosecutor is a member of the executive branch and therefore can request legislature enact laws. And that's another thing that I think Einhorn misses. Again, because of his lack of analytical capability, right. the legislature enacts the laws that are interpreted and or enforced by the courts. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, uh, you know, they cited some of the, the diary passages 
uh, let me see, there's the one about Rita. Oh, here's the one about Judy. Where am I now after having hit Judy over over the head with a bottle? Blood on my jacket and pants, then making some feeble, feeble attempts to choke her. She wanted to live. That has been established. Now she will leave Philadelphia for good. I'll be able, if she does not have me arrested, to go back to living a normal life. Violence always marks the end of a relationship. It is a final barrier over or through which no communication is possible. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so they, they found that the the evidence about Rita and Judy was, was not improperly admitted. Right. Uh, and his conviction and sentence were affirmed on direct appeal. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court denied permission to uh, appeal or denied his request that they review the Superior Court findings. Right. So that was the end. He then filed a state post-conviction motion, uh, and I don't know the exact issues he raised in that. He more likely than not was seeking to relitigate everything from his direct appeal and including um, additional claims related to the 1993 trial. Mm-hmm. He made Brady allegations arising from failure to produce evidence at the 1993 trial or to turn over evidence to his counsel for the 1993 trial uh, related to witnesses who claimed to have seen Holly after September 15th, 1977. Mm-hmm. Um, however, he had that information in the 2002 trial, and his attorneys used it in the 2002 trial. The 1993 trial, basically that judgment and sentence were vacated. So okay. any error in that trial was moot. Hmm. Um, the trial court's opinion... in the post-conviction appeal was affirmed by the Superior Court and once again the, uh, the Supreme Court declined to review. And then mm-hmm. he filed a pro se federal habeas claim. And this is the basis of my belief that analytical capability is beyond Einhorn's Well, analytical, you know, reasoning is beyond Einhorn's capabilities. Because his pro se petition was basically injecting a lot of things that were not produced or or, or proven at trial. Um, you know, claiming a witness lied because Einhorn's testimony differs from that of the witness. Right. And so he's entitled to federal habeas relief. And he brought in a lot of things that had nothing to do with whether he's guilty or innocent. You know, 
he kept the witness's kid way back in the 70s. And the kid didn't get killed, so of course he didn't kill Holly. Mm. That kind of reasoning. You know, um, he raised a lot of Brady violations again related to the 1993 trial, which was a moot point because it was vacated when he was granted a new trial in 2001. Um, So he was denied federal habeas relief by the magistrate who issued a report and recommendation, which was part of the 120-something pages that I found on Monday, late Monday, because my little brain remembered a resource that I'd forgotten about when I was doing the research on Sunday. And so um, that's why we we didn't air this show last night on our regularly scheduled night because I had 125 additional pages of material to go through. Um, and, you know, like I said, he had a lot of irrelevant facts and, you know, facts basically not in evidence. The claims about Steve Levy being given his diary by the prosecutors. You know, again, that is something he never proved at trial. And a lot of his brief was citing decisions of other courts, some not even within the Third Circuit U.S. You know, circuit court or U.S. Supreme Court citing other state court opinions and, you know, citing, not citing Pennsylvania opinions. And so I really got the impression that he, you know, he could take the information and he could spit it back out into a brief, but he couldn't read those cases from beginning to end and understand why they didn't apply or why they really weren't supportive of him. Right. So habeas relief, uh, the magistrate issued an order denying relief. The uh, judge issued an order adopting the report and recommendation of the magistrate. He apparently did not appeal to the Third Circuit Court of Appeal. Mm-hmm. That was in ni- uh, 2018 that the um, that the uh, U.S. District Court decided the, the federal habeas. Now, in 2016, he was transferred from one prison to a facility in Somerset County, which was for older and uh, older inmates and inmates with medical conditions. Right. By that time, he was in his 70s. He was, I think, 76. Um, So he may have been feeling the infirmities of old age by 2016. True. And that is where on April 3rd, which was last Friday, um, he was apparently discovered dead in his cell. 
Oh, such a shame. They didn't disclose a cause of death, although they did say they did not believe it was related to coronavirus. Okay. So, um, and there are, you know, that's that's pretty much the end of it. I think uh, the Maddox family, for them, now it's finally over. Right. Because there's no there's no doubt, there's no chance that he's ever going to get out of prison. Yeah, no. Um, I, I think one of the sisters wishes it had been a, more than 17 years. Right. But um, Einhorn was 79. And I think that's pretty much it. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, the saddest thing is if a guy had just, knowing how Einhorn treated her, had just said, hey, I'm going to go with you. Right. I don't care. I'm going with you. Absolutely. This wouldn't have happened. And she and her dad would likely still be alive. Her dad may have, you know, passed away from medical problems, although I really believe her parents' decline in health after her murder is attributable to the depression and the the loss. I would agree. Um, so, you know, they might have remained very healthy into a very old age had Holly not been murdered. And Holly not been found 18 months later stuffed in a trunk like, you know. Yeah. It didn't matter. Um, and... uh was something else. God, there was something else I thought of that I wanted to say, and then it, I I went off on a tangent. Damn it. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. No, on um, on Sunday I was looking at Twitter, and there's this Ira Einhorn account, which is, of course, now for sale because he's dead. Mm-hmm. And apparently there are people out there who believe that Meg Carlson, who is Holly's sister, born in 1955, is really Holly. So basically, the conspiracy theory is now that Holly was never dead. That this was all just a ruse to put Einhorn in prison. Oh, dear God. That, you know, there was no Meg until after 1979. <laughs> and then Holly assumed the identity of Meg Carlson. Um, now, I will admit, Meg looks, of the three sisters, 
or of the four sisters, Meg is the one who does most resemble Holly. Although looking at photographs of the children, Meg did not bear as much of a resemblance to Holly as a child. But as a mature woman, yes, Meg does resemble Holly. That is not because she is Holly. It is because she is Holly's sister. Right. Um, And I believe Meg has always had kind of reddish hair and to this day has reddish hair or red hair. Holly was a natural blonde. And Michael, look at some of those pictures of that woman. on the page that I posted. Okay. I mean... She was a beautiful... And she was one of those people who was beautiful inside and out. Right. And it's so sad and tragic that she didn't feel... She didn't feel that she fit in. She didn't know her place in the world. She didn't feel like she deserved the people who loved and cared about her Mm -hmm. and that she ever, ever, I mean, you know, you and I have talked, I've talked with you and Brad, I've talked with you and Brad and Sean, Ira Einhorn, the first time he hit me, if I didn't beat his ass then, the first time he slept, he would have gotten a wallop upside the head with something metal and very, very hard. Right. And that would have been the end. It would have been over. And I don't care how sweet he talked to me, it would have stayed over. I agree. But, you know, because I guess even with my issues with self-esteem growing up, you know, teenager and young adult and, and in my 20s, I still, my mom raised me to be strong enough not to take bullshit from people, <laughs> including right. physical abuse. You know, and uh, I've told you, I've had guys tell me they would never hit me because they could just tell it would not go well for them. <laughs> right. And, uh, And I've dated an older man who was domineering and controlling or tried to be with me, and it didn't last. Because the first time he took a tone with me, I was like, don't you ever speak to me that way. (laughs) And the the next time he did it, it's like, okay, we're done. Right. Get out of my house and lose my number. Because I will not tolerate that. I would agree. So, all right. Well, that is our Wednesday night show. Woo, special Wednesday night show. <laughs> <laughs> and um, thank you again for agreeing to do this tonight. I, Instead of insisting that we do it last night, I appreciated that. Hey, it's all good. All right. 
All right, you ready to put a bow on it? Let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearingconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, April 14, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 7, State of California versus Angelo Buono and Kenneth Bianchi. Buono and Bianchi, who are cousins, terrorized the Los Angeles area during the 1980s. The late 1970s, actually, was a series of murders displaying the bodies of the women they raped and murdered on hillsides and in open areas. Dubbed the hillside strangler by the press, they left little evidence behind and would have escaped detection, but for Bianchi's twisted desire to kill. While working as a security guard in Washington State, he murdered two college women and was quickly identified by police. We'll talk about the murders, the arrests of Bianchi and Buono, their trial, or Buono's trial and appeals. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.